If you turn this time to Psalm 72. In the Church Bible, it's page 586 or in the larger print, 907. Psalm 72, of Solomon, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness, May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him with gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May corn abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. This is God's word. And it's about the king and his kingdom. But which king... And which kingdom? Well, the heading of the psalm says, of Solomon. That suggests it might be a prayer that's written by Solomon. But the heading could also be translated for Solomon. And some commentators have suggested this is a prayer actually written by King David for his son Solomon. And there might be support for that down in verse 20. That verse isn't really part of this psalm. It's actually a conclusion to book two of the Psalms, the Psalms 
are divided into several big books, and this one comes at the end of book two. But it mentions there the prayers of David, son of Jesse. But in the end, really, it's not crucial that we know who wrote this. We do know it's connected to Solomon, and whether Solomon wrote it or his father, it's a prayer for Solomon and his kingdom. In his day, Solomon was God's anointed king. He was God's Messiah. And yet what the psalm prays for is way beyond what a merely human king could ever achieve. Solomon's reign was the most impressive in Israel's history. Certainly it was in terms of the prosperity and the extent of his reign. But even his reign fell way short of what is described in this psalm. So who is this about? Well, the New Testament tells us the best bits of the Old Testament kingship, those high points, and there weren't very many of them, But those high points were an anticipation of the eternal kingdom of God. And so a commentator called Bruce Milne has no hesitation at all in saying about Psalm 72, here we anticipate the life of heaven. However relevant this prayer was to Solomon's reign, however much it reminded him of his high calling and what he was supposed to aspire to, This prayer actually leads us to look far beyond Solomon. This is ultimately a vision of an eternal king and his perfect kingdom. So we're going to read it that way. We'll look at it in three sections. Each time we'll start with Solomon's era and then we'll look to the future. And I think this psalm is particularly helpful for us at the start of a new year, on the first Sunday of a new year. Because to be completely honest, I think sometimes the darkness of this world can really get to us. The losses we experience in this world can depress us at times. So at the start of a new year, we need to remember beyond the darkness and the losses, there is a higher throne. And it is occupied by an eternal king. And he's our eternal king. The darkness cannot win. It can't. The losses we experience cannot compare with the gains that come to us when we belong to King Jesus. This psalm brings us back to the bright reality of our Christian confidence and hope. So with that in mind, let's look first at verses 1 to 7. And they describe an endless reign of righteousness. Verse 1 prays that this king would be endowed with God's justice and God's righteousness. So this is about God reigning through his anointed king. The people will experience God's power and goodness through the reign of God's Messiah. This is a prayer that God's kingdom will come through his king. And the word that dominates the opening verses is the word righteousness. It's there three times in the first three verses. What does it mean? Well, it means straightness as opposed to crookedness. It means things are as they should be, as they were intended to be. 
This is a prayer that what is now twisted and bent out of shape will be made straight again. That the reign of God's king will put things right. And so it's not surprising we find the word justice mentioned here too. Twice in the first two verses. Again, the prayer is for things to be sorted out. For injustice to be finally done away with. What would it be like to live in a kingdom like that? The best word to describe it is shalom. It's hard to find one English word to translate the word shalom. The NIV has chosen to go with the word prosperity. It's there in verse 3 and again down in verse 7. And shalom certainly does include the idea of prosperity. That's pictured in verse 3 in terms of crops growing all across the hills. But shalom includes much more than that. It refers to comprehensive well-being, wholeness, security, blessedness. And notice in verse 4, for shalom to come, the oppressor has to be crushed. There can be no true reign of righteousness and justice unless the king takes action against those who oppose righteousness and justice. A king who truly cares about the afflicted is going to deal with those who bring affliction. So those who oppress and afflict have good reason to be terrified of this king. But those who love God's righteousness... To those people, he can only be refreshing and life-giving. He's what we've longed for all our lives. He's like, verse 6, rain falling on a mown field. Like showers watering the earth. Refreshing. Restoring. And so as Psalm 72 prays for a king like that, it prays too that his reign would be eternal. Look at verse 5. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. Now this is a poem and so it's beside the point to object that the sun and the moon aren't actually eternal. The psalmist is pointing to the most permanent things he knows. If you glance down to verse 17, he makes it clear he's talking about forever. May his name endure forever. As far as human beings are concerned, the sun is always there. It's always been there as far as humanity knows. It's been there longer than we have. And as we long for a righteous king, whose righteous reign is always there, who never passes away to be replaced by a king who's going to ruin it all. We pray that his name would endure forever. So how did Solomon measure up to the description in verses 1 to 7? Well, there were certainly glimpses of righteousness and justice in his reign. Maybe the most famous account from Solomon's life is those two prostitutes, you might remember, who came to him with a baby fighting over whose baby it was. And Solomon, with the wisdom God gave him, he figured out a way to put things right in that situation, to bring justice to the mother whose baby it really was. 
And in Solomon's reign, there was a degree of shalom as well. 1 Kings chapter 4 says, During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba lived in safety. Everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. That expression is a standard Old Testament way of describing prosperity and security. It pictures a situation of being well supplied and not under threat. And very significantly, the later Old Testament prophets, they use that phrase as they look forward to what God is going to do. And the reason they do that is because as good as it was, Solomon's reign did not last. However much his reign was characterized by righteousness, justice, and shalom, it certainly didn't endure forever. In fact, the shalom didn't even endure for the length of Solomon's reign. By the end of his reign, he was oppressing his own people. And his son Rehoboam was determined to increase that oppression when he followed his father. So knowing how righteousness and justice petered out in Solomon's reign, as we read these verses, we just can't help but look forward beyond Solomon. As we think about a lack of righteousness, justice, and shalom, we know all about that in our world today. We can see injustice around the world, and some of you, I know, are affected by unjust things and unjust people that you can't seem to overcome or deal with. And what about the state of our own hearts? Bruce Milne says, The human heart is forever subject to dryness of spirit. Life drains us. The stresses and strains of daily life with its multiple relational demands and pressing responsibilities constantly harass and deprive. We find ourselves frequently in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And we also live in the midst of a throwaway society. We're surrounded by things that are impermanent. Nothing seems to last. Even those little moments of shalom that we have, when everything seems to be just right, those pass away so quickly. Even the things and the people that we try desperately to hold on to, we know we can't hold on to them forever. What we need, what we long for in all of these things is a king whose reign brings perfect righteousness, justice, and shalom. And then to find all of that in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, where it's not going to ebb away over time or be cut off. The New Testament promises us all of that in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He demonstrated that during his life on earth. Remember, he sought out the afflicted. He sought out the needy. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. And that was just a little foretaste for a brief time of his eternal kingdom that would last forever. 
Jesus is the king who will truly straighten things out forever. And he will do that by bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. Look how verses 8 to 11 describe the extent of the king's reign. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river, that's the river Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him with gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. The places mentioned in those verses might not be familiar to us, but they equate to the very limits of the known world at that time in all directions. The psalmist is trying to convey a reign without geographical limits. This is to the ends of the earth. It encompasses all nations and the rulers of all nations. They bring him tribute. They present him with gifts. That's a sign that they're all under his rule. This is the king of kings. And what he brings to the ends of the earth is salvation. Verse 12 uses the word deliver. Verse 13 uses the word save. Verse 14 speaks about this king rescuing. It's all making the same point. This is a king who hears the cries of the needy and the afflicted and the weak. The needy and the afflicted and the weak of the whole earth. Their lives are precious to him and he will be their help. He will bring salvation. How well did Solomon do with that? Well, he certainly extended the borders of Israel. First Kings says, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, as far as the borders of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. That's impressive for a little country like Israel at the time. But it falls well short of the ends of the earth. And when it came to delivering and rescuing the needy, Solomon might have started quite well, but he didn't follow through. After his death, the people of Israel told his son, your father put a heavy yoke on us, meaning his reign over us was harsh. Solomon certainly enlarged his kingdom, but he did not deliver, save, and rescue his people. And so long after Solomon's reign, when the prophet Isaiah looked into the future, he spoke of a king who would enlarge the nation and increase their joy. The prophet Micah spoke of a king whose greatness would reach to the ends of the earth. And at the same time, this king would shepherd his flock. So his reign would not be the harsh reign of a tyrant. It would be the loving, saving reign of a shepherd. A king who genuinely cares for his flock. And then finally, we come in the New Testament to Jesus who says, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, not like Solomon's, and my burden is light. Jesus is the king who delivers and saves those who come to him. His salvation is available to the ends of the earth. And that was shown not long after his birth when magi from the east came and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Tribute for a king. Just as verse 10 describes it here in our psalm. And that incident with the Magi was just a foretaste of what was to come and what is to come for Jesus. The book of Revelation describes the future reality of heaven. John says, I saw a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people, and language standing before God's throne and before the Lamb, holding palm branches in their hands and crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And if we think about how all of this comes together in Jesus, this worldwide power along with care for the needy and the weary. Bruce Milne says, it is precisely this combination of infinite majesty and power with the deepest most tender humanity, which has been the secret of the perennial attraction of Jesus Christ to the human heart across the ages, and which will find its final expression in the new heaven and earth, presided over by an enthroned lamb with the marks of wounds in his hands and side. We have a king who brings salvation to the ends of the earth. He combines infinite majesty and power with the deepest, most tender humanity. His salvation truly delivers, saves, and rescues from sin, from shame, and the oppression that goes along with all that. And ultimately, he saves us from death and hell. And so this king is a king to be honored endlessly in all the earth. In verses 15 to 19. These verses return to what we've already seen in the psalm. Verses 15 and 17 bring back the images of prosperity and endless rain. Corn swaying on the hills. We find that again in verse 16. Again, we hear about his name enduring forever as long as the sun in verse 17. Then from the middle of verses 17 to 19, we hear again about all nations on the whole earth. But what's new in these verses is the praise and honor directed to this king. In verse 15, he is to be blessed all day long. Verse 17, all nations will call him blessed. And notice by the time we get to verse 18... There's no doubt anymore about whether we're praising a merely human king. Praise be 
to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. The opening verses of the psalm pray that the king would be endowed with God's justice and righteousness. But something even better is being described here at the end of the psalm. The king is God himself. When he's glorified in the whole earth, it will be God who's being praised. God who became a man to establish an endless reign of righteousness. God who became a man to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's what we celebrated during Advent. That Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Someone has said, tomorrow's history has already been written. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. The prayer of Psalm 72 has begun to be fulfilled in Jesus. We've already thought about Jesus' childhood on earth when the Magi came and brought him gifts. But in his gospel, Matthew also tells us they bowed down and worshipped him. And that was just a little foretaste of the worship that will be brought to him. Revelation 21 says the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to Jesus. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought to him. Our king will be honored endlessly in all the earth. And he will be honored because every promise of God will be fully delivered in him. He will make good on every promise God has given us. This psalm reminds us of that. The second half of verse 17 is quoting from God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. The promise that started it all off, that God would bless all peoples on earth through a descendant of Abraham. The whole history of Israel in the Old Testament, Israel's kings, all of that was moving toward the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And the fulfillment comes in Jesus Christ. He is that descendant of Abraham. All God's promises are yes in Jesus. And so as you and I move into the new year, let's remember that. None of us know what these 12 months are going to bring for us, but we do not need to fear. In 1939, King George VI quoted a poem in his Christmas broadcast, and that poem has become very famous. 
I don't know if it was well known before he quoted it. It began like this. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. That's pretty good advice as far as it goes. But as Christians, we have something even better as we stand at the gate of the year. As dark as things might look, we are not in the dark about what the future holds for us. Of course, we don't know the little twists and turns our lives are going to take this year. But we know that in Jesus Christ, tomorrow's history has already been written. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. We know that with him, our path leads to eternal peace and prosperity. He will straighten out everything that is crooked. He will bring perfect justice and righteousness. And we will be part of his reign if we belong to him. And his reign will never end. He is the king who will be honored endlessly in all the earth. And so when we know that, we don't need to know the details of what this year has for us. Because we know our future ultimately is bright. It's secure for in Christ. As we step into the new year, we can trust our king. And that knowledge is better than light and safer than a known way. We're going to give honor to our King together now as we sing a version of Psalm 72. It was written by Isaac Watts. And he caught the fact that this psalm dealing with Solomon is ultimately teaching us about Jesus. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run.